Welcome to episode four of the Football Shirt Pod. My name's Josh, and today we're joined by James Brown, the man who, in 1994, founded Loaded magazine, and with it, the entire Lads Mag genre. He's also a massive Leeds United fan, but more on that later. You know, in pre-season, he drove a motorbike up some steps into a reception in a hotel on the Isle of Wight. Steve Claridge played with his socks rolled down. Gazza was always fucking drunk and messing around, and they were the players that were interesting. Um, I can't remember what the first question I said I was going to ask you was now. Um, should we just start with... Yeah, well, I know what it was. It was about the magazines that you read when you were when you were kind of growing up or a bit younger that perhaps went on to influence yeah. you. Well, the first the first magazines I ever really read were comics, and um, apart from obviously things like the Dandy and the Beano and Wizard and Chips and Cheeky, the two comics that I absolutely loved were Royal Rovers and Tiger and Jag, and. Um, Ryder Brothers was pure football. Every comic strip in there was football, led by the the you know the, the strip about Roy Race and Melchester Rovers, and yeah. uh, also there were things. There was a kid called Nick. There were just there were great. I mean, I, I had I, the the highlight of my year was when when this is I'm talking about when I was sort of eight or something was. Uh, coming back from holiday and knowing that there'd be three comics there if we'd been away for two weeks. And uh, they just were great characters. They were great stories. There was a strip that was called Bobby of the Blues, Jackie of the Reds or something like that. Or Bobby of the... And uh, that, that basically was looked like it was about the Charlton brothers. And yeah. then there was another one, a cartoon strip called Nipper Lawrence, who was this kid who didn't really have any shoes. I don't know if he was supposed to be a homeless kid or a gypsy kid or something. And he was amazing. And the, the way they used to draw the him sort of slicing the ball over a distance and it landing in a dustbin for practice. And then and then another more famous strip was uh, Billy's Boots, which was about a kid called Billy Dane. And he'd been given or found or bought an old second-hand pair of boots. And they were they were like imbued with the spirit of the former owner, who was a guy called Deadshot Keen. Who, yeah. who was uh, a great player. And, you know, and he, so it was like, they were like ghost boots. And he'd be in a game and suddenly, like, this carriage would be talking to him. And I used to love them. And, and then Tiger, I think Tiger and Jag probably influenced me a bit when, we did, when I did Loaded because of the diversity of content in there was very interesting in that it was a sports comic. There was a, there was a, there was a, there was a strip about a wrestler, an American seminal wrestler called Johnny Cougar. And there was a, a rally, a rally quiz like cross country rally called Martin's Marvelous Mini, and there was a Formula One strip called Skid Solo. So that was really where my love of, I think, I guess sports related publications began, and then the other big thing in my life when I was a kid was music. And um, I started looking at the enemy. I guess, in about 1979 or something like that, when I was sort of 14, 15, starting to go on school trips abroad. 
by the time I got to about 17, 18, and I, the economic situation in, in the country was really poor, especially in the north. And I'm not from a particularly wealthy family or anything like that. So I, I kind of, I, I kind of, I was, I was just massively into music. I would, I go to lots of gigs in Leeds. I saw people like U2 and Depeche Mode at tiny venues. I mean, really small venues, two, three hundred people. Um, and I would go, you know, you just hope you'd pick up those newspapers to see bands coming through the enemy and you'd look in the, in the, in the gig listings pages and that's, and then I discovered fanzines, which is suddenly seemed like I thought, oh, maybe I could do a fanzine. These printed, hand printed, hand drawn, uh, music magazines that started or certainly exploded with punk. There were a few of those around and, and, and that was it really. That was when, that was the start of my professional kind of step towards, well, my step towards having a career in, in, in magazines yeah. and media. And um, so it was all, to answer your question, it was football comics as a kid and then music magazines in my teens. Yeah. I would go to Ellen Road in the mid seventies to see Leeds when I was about 9, 10, 11, 12, me and my mates used to get the bus. It was a long way across Leeds. We would get the bus, number one or the number four, from Headingley, where the cricket ground and the rugby ground were, and it would take us all the way to Beeston, where Ellen Road was. And, um, you know, music... But then by about the time I was about 13, 14, 15, 16, I wanted to spend my money on records and gigs. Um... So it was that was a mixture really, and then later on, obviously much later in my life, the thing that I'm most well known for was creating a magazine that mixed music and football. When I when I did the first layouts for Loaded, there'd obviously never been a magazine that was a mass market men's lifestyle magazine, and one of the first layout, I think possibly the first ever layout we had, was I envisaged. This was in the dummies, the very very beginning of planning what it would be. I did a layout about, it was a nostalgic look back about the lack of bald footballers. And I put the name, the name that I put there was Kevin Sampson, who was my friend who managed the farm. And Kevin became a novelist. And he'd been a writer for the end as well, occasionally. So that, that was a key point for me early on, that actually, that the nostalgic love of uh, our, our you know, our childhood experiences of football was something that was going to be in there. Um, and I think in a way, because the magazine was such a huge success, in the same way as the punk era new music papers had influenced publishing in all aspects for a long time, that whether it was literally by the, because it was produced by the same people, i.e. like Smash Hits and then the, and then the Face, they were all written by ex-enemy writers. Well, Lodi did the same thing. Lodi kind of, uh, certainly, you know, I'm talking about my first three years that Lodi existed. We would write about football from a perspective that was totally unique in that we saw the footballers like we, those of us that had worked on music papers saw the musicians. We looked at them like mates rather in awe, in awe of them. And I think... Um, you know, a lot of the footballers were really comfortable with it and they wanted to be in it and uh, 
and, and that was a total revelation. But you could, I'm trying to think of some specific features. So like, you know, Gavin Hills was a great writer. Gavin went off to the, um, I don't know what the, I don't know what the tournament was. It might have been the European Cup Winners Cup or something like that in, in, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, I think, or Bud Budapest with Man United and wrote a, you know, a piece about just what it was like going abroad and doing that. There weren't match reports. Or, you know, a guy called Trevor Ward interviewed Steve McManaman and Robbie Fowler. We shot them well. They were just chatting. And, you know, they were like, when Trevor went to the toilet, they picked his phone up and started telling filthy jokes. So not being a football writer, a football writer wouldn't have included that. Trevor just put it all in because it was within the context of us trying to create a magazine that was like how we were. And I remember yeah. afterwards, there was a bit of a furore about that at Liverpool because some of the people said, oh, they'd been stitched up, i.e. we hadn't self-edited ourselves. But Trevor was not, it wasn't done in an unpleasant way, the way it was delivered. And then a lot of the, Tim, who was my deputy, and I knew a lot of those players, Steve McManaman, Jamie Redknapp, Phil Babb, Jason McAteer, and... They just said, well, they shouldn't have said it to you, should they? You know, it's fine. Everything's fine. The week yeah. after, I had to give the Man of the Match award to McManaman at Anfield with Carlsberg. That was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I think they got, they got a bollocking by Roy Evans for it because it had been picked up. But it was just that... I mean, that, that was talking... I mean, that's an example of where we were encountering matches and then encountering actual players... But there were lots of pieces talking about just, you know, I guess the side of football that the, the Main Street, the, the, the newspapers weren't writing about and Shoot wasn't writing about. Just while we're on Lola, can we talk about the sort of the wh where it came from, basically? So where the where you because it was you and, and two others. Is that right? Who founded the magazine? Am I right? No, I, I came up with the idea for Loaded. I was interviewed for the editorship of the NME. And they said, if we don't give you this, would you like your own magazine? I said, yes. And they didn't give me it, so I came away. I wrote a sheet of paper describing what Loaded would be. And I described the sort of people that would be in the cover. And, and that was pretty much what came out, you know, 18 months later. The difference, the only, the, uh, you know, it said it, it, would be for, it would be about football. And the big two, com the two things that had never been put together before in one's place were football and music. So music, football, clubbing, comedy. I'd been writing a lot about comedy near the end of my time at the NME. I'd, I'd kind of written the first pieces on Vic Reeves and Jack D and hung out with Jerry Sadovitz, written about Jerry. Um, Dennis Leary was another guy I used to write about. So I knew there was a big comedy scene and, and then other things were changing. You know, you could, suddenly there was this concept that you, I mean, I think this was a little bit later, but when the, when the budget airlines came in, suddenly the idea of going to Thailand was a lot easier than you'd ever imagined before. And um, so that was the idea to put kind of travel, drink, nightclubs, football, music. Um, and and that was it. And the, the only thing that really changed between that sheet of paper that I gave them I, I said I wanted it to be like Arena, edited by Hunter S. Thompson. Because Arena was yeah. a kind of a style and fashion mag that sold like 30,000, 40,000 or something. And, um, 
And then also I said I wanted it to create generational tension. I remember that. I've been hanging around, <laughs> I've been hanging around with the Manics too much. And then, as, and then as well, I listed the sort of people that I wanted on the covers. I wanted guys who were up and coming and edgy and had energy and a sense of danger. Um, so people like, for instance, Prince Nassim Hamed, I remember putting in. And then people like, uh, who were knackered and past it with great stories to tell, like George Best and Ollie Reed and Hurricane Higgins. So that, they, that was the template. And, and that pretty much... And then the company asked me to put in girls. They said that you've got everything in here that guys like apart from girls. And then they, and they also asked us to put fashion in because it gave them an, uh, a commercial uh, outlook, you know, in terms of, of, of securing and advertising. Um, this, you're talking there about Arena, you know, taking a, a perhaps, and, and I guess GQ and others being more kind of, almost I read when I read something about it telling you the life that you should lead rather than the, the life that you actually do lead and then <clears throat> loaded being the sort of reverse of that but I always remember thinking that it was it sort of told me talked to me about football in the way that I would talk to my friends about it in a way that sort of arena and others had kind of never really touched football properly not real football I did a tiny bit of writing for arena about the year before I started loaded and so you're scouting around for ideas for stories they were never big pieces. They were, and I'm, I'm trying to think how I, how I found it. But um, somebody told me about a football boot called Blades that was going to be coming out with kind of like ridges, angled ridges instead of studs. So I wrote a piece about that. And in the process of researching that, again, you had to just pick the phone up and call people. There was no internet. <laughs> there was no googling blades or you know i found out whilst i was talking to people about that uh that adidas were developing a boot that was sort of similar and that craig johnson had taken that idea to them the ex-liverpool player so i spoke to craig i got hold of him through adidas i spoke to craig and that i think is the first ever article about predator boots and it's like the size of a suntan lotion bottle it was like one one column and the boot yeah. they they didn't put even put the blades boot in they put adidas they got all of a shot of the of the of the fledgling predator before it was commercially or you know launched for the for the retail or or publishing world or anything like that and the picture was the size of a stamp so you know years later i saw nick logan who did arena face, smash it, enemy. And he said, it's unbelievable. But even when I got to know Nick, he said, we should have, that should have been a double page spread. He said that he'd gone to the editor afterwards and said, that should have been a double page spread at the front. It's, it's about stylistic innovation for men. And uh, as it was then, there was very few women footballers then. And um, so, you know, I remember, I remember Arena having Gary Lineker on the cover, but at that point, Gary Lineker was very squeaky clean. He wasn't the sort... I mean, I loved him playing for England, but he wasn't Gaza or Paul Merson yeah. or Steve yeah. Claridge or Peter Beagrie. He wasn't one of the players that... Yeah. You know, Beagrie scored a goal, he'd do a double somersault flip. You know, on pre-season, he drove a motorbike up some steps into a reception and a 
hotel on the Isle of Wight. Steve Claridge played with his socks rolled down. Gazza was always fucking drunk and messing around and, and, and joking around like a clown. Merson was obviously some used to celebrate drinking. So they, they were the players that, if you look beyond your own team of heroes, they were the players that were interesting. And then Cantona arrived at, at Leeds, who was obviously a very, very different figure to most footballers. And so just having a nice squeaky clean interview with Gary Lineker uh, just once, you know, it wasn't going to go. I mean, we wanted yeah. to, we were going to have, uh, we wanted to put Eric on the first cover of Loaded. The three big features were Paul Weller, Eric Cantona and Gary Oldman. The three big profile pieces. and But the, this is, again, is a reflection of how football has changed so much and how important imagery and, and, and branding and design and, and media is to to sport now is that there were no decent pictures of him. There were, abs- there were no pictures of Eric that you could have put on the front of a magazine. There were pictures of him on the pitch playing. Um, but even then, there weren't even many pictures of Eric playing because um, he hadn't played that much. And, and so there was no... We didn't want to put a, a shot of a player playing football on the cover. We didn't want to play that. Also, I think he'd gone to Man U by then, so there's no way that... My deputy and I were both Leeds fans. So there's no way we were putting a Man U fan on the cover and a Man U player on the cover. And, and then there was a shot of him in a pub that somebody had taken a paparazzi chat, you know, having a drink with his agent. There was a shot of him in a Paco Ravan cream-coloured suit walking down a catwalk, which didn't look right, taken from a distance. And there was a picture of him in double denim with a hitchhiking sign. They, they were the only pictures we could get hold of him. And so, so we couldn't put Eric on the cover and he wouldn't do an interview. So we got the guy who wrote a column in the magazine, Mag- Man U fanzine, Bernard Bale was his name, to just clip together whatever quotes he'd got from Eric and, and write an appreciation of him just with all his little personal experiences of, of, of interviewing him. And then we were going to put Paul Weller on the cover. We shot Paul and, and interviewed him. And then the powers that be said, if we put Paul Weller on the cover, it might affect the sales of The Enemy and Vox, which was a music mag they had. Um... So we ended up with just Gary Oldman. It's very easy to get a good portrait of Gary Oldman because the film industry at that obviously understood the importance of, uh, you know, film stars being photographed and interviewed. And, and, and also film stars were frequently on all sorts of magazine covers from TV listings, mags, to women's magazines, to um, film magazines, newspaper supplements. So it was, it was hard yeah. to get those shots of Eric. I read something else as well um, that you and I think uh, some of the other guys who, who who were with you at the start of Loaded, um, you'd gone to Barcelona to watch Leeds play against Stuttgart, I think it was, and it was a gorgeous late summer's evening in Barcelona and you'd had a few drinks and, and everyone was in a good mood and, and, you, and you said that you stopped and you said, this is what the magazine's got to be like, this is what Loaded's got to be like. That's true, that, that's true. There'd been a replay of a uh, European Cup game. And I, I forget what tournament we were in, maybe the UEFA Cup or something. Um, yeah. Stuttgart had fielded an illegible sub. 
and uh, so the the replay was at, at uh, the new camp a neutral i mean it should have just been at ellen road again but it was at, at a neutral ground and leeds won they took out harrod took eric off and put carl shut on it was kind of it was a hard it was a typical howard wilkinson non-glamour hard-working player he, he lacked a fair bit of confidence i believe and you know, even the players have said when they saw Shutty going, bearing down on goal, Gordon Strachan was central, who was the captain and a very adept finisher. And they were going, get to Gordon, give it to Gordon. And he scored in the, like within a minute or two of coming on. So there was this fantastic sense of elation and surprise. And there were only about 3,000 people in the stadium. The whole of the new Camp, there was a couple of thousand leads, a couple of thousand... Stuttgart at the other end and in the middle there were some Barcelona fans with the, 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 they had a massive banner that said something like fuck Germany love Leeds or something like that <laughs> and uh, and we went out afterwards and I remember we were with and I've got to remember this this first time I've told this story for a long time but, but we were with a pl we were with a plasterer and a fireman that we just met I remember one of them was called Lee so it was me, Tim, my deputy, and these two guys we'd never met before. We were just wandering around Barcelona, off the Ramblas, coming in. And one minute we were looking at this just beautiful church and then going in and out of bars. And then we tried to blag in. I think we, we tried to blag into a club pretending to be in a band. And, just, and I said, as we went in or out of that club, I said to Tim, this feeling has to be captured. This is what our magazine has to feel like the fact that you can have two guys who were in the media. He was working on Smash Hits and those three magazines. They used to give away to secretaries, Miss London. And I'd been working on the enemy. And that time I was writing for the Sunday Times. I was writing a lot of big features for the Sunday Times magazine. So we worked in the media. Then you had a fireman from Preston and a plasterer from uh, the East End or somewhere. It didn't matter what our backgrounds were. We were just having a great time, and that that sense of camaraderie and optimism and uh, and that anything was possible that that was, and I think the fact that I said that was probably good because he and I both knew. But at this point, there were about four of us in a room developing it, and so we knew then it was about having a really good time, and that helped us. Yeah. That helped us focus. Um, on a on a you know a kind of like a clear attitude. Yeah, I see. So it's more it it's, it is that kind of feeling of optimism and and enjoyment, but it actually goes beyond that because it was about who the audience was as well, and c c because the audience of Loaded presumably well, I'm, from my own sort of understanding of Loaded was it was quite split really. It was you know there would be people from very different kind of socio economic backgrounds um, because it's sort of it was it kind of cut across a lot of uh, demographics. That's true because we set out to make it attractive to men, and yeah. we didn't say what type of men. Uh, and the previous magazines, there were fashion magazines like ID and the Face, and style magazines, style magazines like ID, the Face, Arena, and Blitz, and they were very exclusive. They they tended to write about. I mean, ID wrote a little bit more about about clubs around. 
the country and, and, and the world. But certainly the face blitz and arena, just all they give a fuck about was what seemingly was what was going on in Soho. And that was a very narrow perspective. And, you know, I just remember trying to break into the music papers from when I was, you know, up in Leeds and then Manchester. And I wanted it to be, I knew that, for instance, Acid House had, had been a huge nationwide thing. If you went to Shelley's in Stoke, it was a massive scene. If you went to the raves indoors and outdoors in Blackburn, it was a massive scene. The Hacienda obviously had been, you know, and by the, t by the time 1990 was going on, the Hacienda was the most important club in Britain. And people were coming from places like Rolling Stone and Newsweek and these international publications were writing about New Order's nightclub. Um, Viz had come from Newcastle. Uh, there was a really good music scene in Bristol. So, you know, then we had a guy in who was going to write about clubs and, uh, you know, he didn't want to just go to clubs in London. He wanted to go all over the country. So... We were very much about being inclusive rather than exclusive. And that was deliberate. And then in terms of age as well, I was very balanced in making sure that, you know, that we would have icons from the 60s or the 70s, certainly the 70s, the 70s and the 80s, as well as contemporary figures from the 90s. So in any issue, you might get an interview with Steve Bull talking about being at Wolves. But then you'd also have an appreciation of the fancy dance, you know, Charlie George and, and Rodney Marsh and Stan Bowles. Um, and, and that was very deliberate, the, the, uh, the idea of having different generations content that would appeal to somebody who was kind of 18 or somebody who was kind of 38 or 48. Football was obviously a big part of Loaded, <clears throat> but it was also that time, that era was such an interesting kind of the, the mid '90s. Things were happening, obviously, in terms of the in terms of politics. It was obviously a Tory government coming to the end of its its lifespan. Um, there was a, an economy which was sort of booming, and and um, a, a culture scene, particularly music, which was which was kind of funny. It's confidence self-confidence in this country as well but football too was suddenly going you know he obviously had Italian 90 and then and then the birth of the Premier League football had gone through these or the, or the second half of the 80s particularly post high school was bad horrible attendances plummeting and then suddenly you have Italian 90 and you have the Premier League and then you have Euro 96 all these things that sort of make football cool but also make the footballers celebrities as well and I guess Loaded came along at exactly the right time to sort of tap into that. Well, in the early 90s, when I left the NME, you'd go to the Reading Festival and you'd have a big backstage area with different bars in it and stuff. All the record company execs and the band managers all communicated through football discussion. That was the common language, the common focus. Everyone was, was obsessed with it. And they didn't talk, maybe they didn't want to talk about their bands, but everybody just was talking about football. <laughs> That's my memory of that period. People would be stuck around in, in fleeces, like North Face fleeces, combat trousers talking about football. And, you know, this is like 1992, 1991. And um, there were lots of different reasons for that. I think 
Sky was a big reason. It meant you suddenly could see football all the time, a lot more football. Um, and obviously England's, I mean, the most important thing was England's relative success in, in Italy. Uh, and Ireland's success as well in, in, in 88 and 90, and then later in 94. And obviously they didn't, neither of those teams won the World Cup, but they won more games than people thought they would. And the culture of the national team, particularly in England, was, you, you know, you'd get these, I don't know if they were football journalists or news journalists or gossip journalists, but, you know, Robbie, Bobby Robson had been taken apart. Whatever went on in these people's private lives, they would just be taken down by the papers and, and there was no real expectation and I think what you you know if you, if you go back to when you know Maradona and the hand of God and the, and then the disasters at the at the European stadiums and then the the Bradford fire and the riot at Birmingham when somebody died and you know it, 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 you mentioned Heisel huge riots huge huge violent riots between teams like Millwall and Luton and it was football was not a palatable thing for the wider public, and then suddenly England did well in that tournament, and Ireland did well, and there was this kid. He was like a clown, and you still had the more well-known players like 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 Lineker and John Barnes, and they're just you know Gaza suddenly made football something you could people could tell their kids about. So I think that was it, and then of course. There was uh, Football Italia when Gaza moved to Italy. That became another strand of football that had never been shown before, you know, on Sunday mornings. And it wasn't that great, really, the Italian Football League. There, weren't, the, there weren't many Horrendous. goals, but the, the shirts looked good and, and the, presenter yeah. was, the presenter was really good. And, yeah. and then other football programmes started to pop up. Um, Simon O'Brien, who'd been Damon in Brookside, he had a football show. Fantasy football, of course. Fantasy football later. It just became a more palatable thing for the media um, to present. and um, But I think it all stemmed from the, the, the success. And I just think culturally as well, I think that... This, yeah, I think it stemmed, it stemmed from the relative success of, it, of, it, of Italian 90. Probably rave culture had an influence on it as well. You know, it... It was, there was just a really great feeling at the start of the 90s, at the end of the 80s, start of the 90s. You know, Manchester was having this huge resurgence musically. We would go up, I remember going up to Manchester to make a documentary with Stuart McConey when we were both on the NME and we'd be going in and out of these little uh, business centres, you know, like old offices, old warehouses and they were full of like little you know, like presses, people doing T-shirts and it was like, or people like putting on clubs or bands emerging. So there was all of these assorted different uh, spikes in uh, positive and creative output. Same as what I mentioned about, about the comedians. There were loads of great comedians emerging. So there was just, I mean, in my book, which is out in February or March or sometime, I put it down to being like last orders for the century, you know. I think it was just, 
I mean, I don't even know if last orders means anything anymore. But in the old days, when you, when you had to stop drinking by like quarter to 11 and they'd throw you out of the pub at 11, you know, the last 30 minutes were about 10, 15, 10, 20 people were just piling in, chomping as many drinks as possible. And um, so I think, I don't know if there was anything, I, don't, I guess there isn't anything to that because it's, you know, it wasn't really until the late 90s that people even started thinking about the end of the end of the millennium, end of the century. But um, I think culturally and then media-wise, it was, it was just a perfect time for football to get better. And, and another thing is, this is pertinent to you because foreign players started coming to England and bringing this real sense of um, charisma and mystique and... You know, there were some brilliant players coming. Tony Yeboah at Leeds, Eric Cantona before him. When Arsenal bought Dennis Bergkamp, it was like, yeah. it, it just seemed such a, an, an amazing acquisition. Whereas yeah. if you go before that, if you went back into the 70s, there was Arnold Muir and, and Franz Tyson at your club Ipswich. There was um, uh, the two Argentinian uh, players at Spurs, they were really, they were great players. And there were probably a few more players scattered around. Scotland later had a lot more foreign players because they had a lot from the from Scandinavia. Um, but suddenly, you know, the, you'd, you'd have a Czech goalkeeper at West Ham or something like that. But there were, yeah. sudden, suddenly, every club started getting a foreign player. And it was... It was yeah. exciting, you know, they were, these were players that had different skills, you know, whether it was later people like Di Canio or JJ Kocha, you know, you had teams, uh, you know, at Newcastle when they had um, the Colombian, they were, yeah. they were unpredictable, they were unpredictable, they were different, Paolo Wonchop at, at, at Derby, yeah. you know, picked the yeah. ball up at the penalty area and ran through the whole Man United team and scored... Peter and Love at yeah. Coventry, you know, yeah, yeah. and Love they were they were I mean they were asking George Best if he was the closest player he'd seen to himself, and Best was going yes. Um, <laughs> so you know, for for clubs like Coventry and Derby and West Ham, and uh, you know all, all of the uh, Bolton for these clubs leads to to suddenly have these magicians in their team. King Cladsey was one of the first ones at Manchester City. Yeah. What a player. They were great. You know, they'd actually had one in the, in the, in the 70s with Kazimir Dana, or maybe the early 80s. He was from Poland. He was the Polish captain. But it was very rare to have foreign players and, and suddenly having these guys from countries you didn't even... I mean, I didn't know Ghana had a football team when <laughs> Yeboah showed up. You don't because... I mean, obviously you do, but you don't know anything about them. You know, you yeah. couldn't... Nowadays, because of the, the FIFA and the rest of it, the kids know about all of these players and how good they are and who they've played yeah. for before yeah. they've even come to the UK to play. Um, yeah. I remember when Klinsman... Even when Klinsman joined Spurs in, what was that, 93? Yeah. I remember thinking, what on earth is happening? Klinsman in the Premier League. Like, he's a world superstar. What's he doing in England? It felt, felt very exotic. So I think that had a major effect. I definitely think... I mean, and if also, if you think about... Um, I mean, and now I think it's, it's almost the opposite now. It's like you kind of... Maybe because Leeds have been out of the 
Premier League for so long. I don't know half of the players, you know. I I know about Joe Lolly at Nottingham Forest, but I don't know about. I mean, they're so young as well. The the speed of the game and the, and and how fast these young young boys are in the Premier League. That I mean, I, again, I sound like a fucking pensioner, but the it's um, these players. You know, are just standout players. The ones I'm talking about from the seventies. And most teams had one. Most teams had a player. Um, and they had other players as well. So, like, Chelsea would have Dan Petrescu. Leeds would have Gunnar Haller. You know, kind of just av- average Premier League players. But the, but the really... You know, when, when Rude Hollett joined Chelsea, that was like a massive deal. Rude Hollett, as you just said about Klinsman. These were, and it goes back to what I said about how limited football was in exposure in the 70s. Even in the 90s, uh, you know, you kind of... The idea that Hollett had been at Milan, had been the great Milan team, was going to go and play for Glenn Hoddle at Chelsea was... It seemed so exciting. And and I think... Yeah. I think for a while, the, the, the international aura of these players meant you kind of set aside your club... Um, resentments or, or, or your you know, your disrespect or your lack of interest or your hatred even of other clubs because you could just sit back and go, wow, Rude Hollett or Jürgen Klinsmann. I I, I can remember though in the late 80s, I was quite young going to watch Ipswich and we signed Sergei Baltacha from Dinamo Kiev and we were second division team then and he'd just been in the Euro 88. Did they win it? They got to the final in Euro 88, didn't they? And he got to the final and then we signed for Ipswich. I remember going and there was like 6,000 more people on the gate come to see this guy who'd he'd come from well you well, it would have been the ussr then but uh ukraine and uh just because it was so unbelievably different you know we were a team of english players pretty much and then suddenly you got this guy from dinamo kiev like a club you'd sort of heard of but you never didn't know anything about them nobody in nobody in england knew anything about eric Cantona, and i think i think I think Howard Wilkinson called Glenn Hoddle, I think, and said, what's this guy like, Glenn? Because Glenn had finished his career playing in France for, for Arsene Wenger at, at Monaco, I think it was. And he, he called him and he said, get him, Howard, he's a genius. I mean, he's a bit of a trouble, but he's, but he's a great player. And so he, he, I think, he, unusual that, because Howard Wilkinson's management style and Glenn Hoddle's playing style were, were, were very different. And... <laughs> But but if the but if the managers didn't know about these players as well, I sh- I've got to talk to you about Leeds United just quickly as well. Um, obviously, you must be delighted that the the season is is starting again, and you're. In a- When's this going out? Uh, probably in about a week's time. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'm delighted after we've played three games. I mean, I thought I thought we were up twice. Yeah. Every year it gets to about April, and I think we're up. We yeah. won the last five games. We won the last five games before the lockdown came. And, and the good thing was, there was a guy who's uh, often injury prone, Tyler Roberts, was fantastic. He had one game against Nottingham Forest about 18 months ago that was televised and he got man of the match. And you saw then, and he's a goal scorer. Bamford is, is more of a worker and... It doesn't take us anywhere near as many chances as, 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 as he has opportunities. So Roberts was the form player and he looked, he, he 
scored a couple of fantastic goals in one game and then it ended. So then, then I thought, OK, we're going up. We're in such amazing form. The morale. Players were coming good at the right time. Luke Ayling, who's um, kind of uh, often the second choice captain if Cooper's out, was, was having a real resurgence in form. Scored, started scoring goals from the fullback. He scored an amazing goal. Every single game, Leeds were improving on, on outstanding goals. And then it stopped. And then eight weeks later, they decide they're not going to start the league and they're going to do it points per game. So I thought, OK, we're up. There's no way the season's going to start again. Great. When I thought we were up, obviously I was saying, oh, well, it's a pity. It would have been great to have done it properly and finished the game. But if it's finished, it's finished. That's great. But you know what? I've got to just say this, that the experience of and the quality of the football that we're playing has been yeah. so brilliant. Yeah. That I mean, I don't want it to end. I don't want Bielsa to leave. I don't want Calvin Phillips to leave. Um, you know, there was a night at Ellen Road in the Champions League run when we got to the semi-finals and were knocked out by Valencia. And I watched Kewell stream down the wing, cut in and score at Ellen Road. And I watched Boyer score. And the speed and the ability and the mixture of young talent like Alan Smith um, and Stephen McPhail, Eric Backer, with older players like Batty and Decor and Viduka, um, Don Matteo, Lucas Vidavi, players like that. I remember thinking one night, this might be the best football I ever watch Leeds play. And it kind of doesn't matter if we don't win this tournament, but this might be the best ever. And yet, this year has been, the football's been astounding, but it's not been in the Champions League, it's been in the Championship. But you must have thought you'd be back in the Premier League before. When did you get relegated, 04? Oh, God, I tell you what. The year we went down, I hosted a dinner in a restaurant in London, and the guest, just for 24 Leeds fans, with a private room in a restaurant that I knew, and Eddie Gray, we paid Eddie Gray to come and talk to us. And, uh, you know, they were mostly mates and mates of mates. And he, Eddie was down commenting on Leeds QPR. And he came and he talked. And he said, this might take five years. And I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, is he serious? <laughs> and he said, yeah, this might take years. And I, I actually thought, I couldn't comprehend that. I genuinely, I've never told anyone this. I've just thought about it. But I absolutely could not comprehend being in the second level for five years. It's 15 years on! <laughs> but, but you know, you know, we're in League One and Jermaine Beckford scored the winning goal against a pretty strong Man United team. That was, that was yeah. exciting. And when Beckford scored again against Bristol Rovers and we were down to like 10 men in a totally unexpected sending off of like a really nice, friendly gay guy not gay, a really nice, friendly guy, Max Gradle. That's where my A-Y went there. My yeah, Max Gradle, yeah. kind of, they were brilliant days. They were brilliant, yeah, yeah. brilliant moments. And, um, you know, it's just, this is really what supporting a football club is about. You go up and you go down. And I would rather have done what Leeds has done than, you know, never achieve anything and just sit like, Ninth 
in the Premier, yeah. you know, in the Premier League forever. 